Welcome to the PT and OT Connection Podcast by Summit Professional Education, dedicated to helping PTs and OTs improve patient outcomes while earning continuing education credit. For information on earning CE credits for this podcast and satisfactory completion requirements for your state and profession, please go to summit-education.com or click the link of the course description in your podcast platform. Hello, my friends. How is everyone doing? I would like to welcome you to our one-hour summit professional education podcast, and we're going to be talking about geriatric shoulder rehabilitation this afternoon. My name is Paul Frizzell, and I'm a physical therapist. I am currently a clinician working with patients at all different levels of the rehab spectrum. Love, love, love talking about and researching and getting into the weeds on all these different subjects to do with orthopedics and sports and dizzy people. So those are kind of my comfort areas in rehab. Let me tell you a little bit about what we're going to go through and talk about today. We've got a couple of learning objectives for you. Of course, those objectives is that I'd like you to be able to apply the most frequently chosen strategy for the management of proximal humerus fractures in the geriatric patient. And then we're also going to look at being able to analyze the effects of rotator cuff tears on ADLs in the geriatric population. So things that we're going to talk about specifically, you know, geriatrics is a really big, broad area of patient population. It covers kind of a lot of ages and probably covers a majority of the patients that we all see. So we're going to really focus in on three areas specifically three pathologies in the shoulder that I've had a tendency to see quite a bit of in the outpatient rehab setting. And, you know, based on the, the, the statistics that are out there too, these are quite frequent issues that we encounter in the geriatric population. So we're going to talk specifically today about proximal humerus fractures, rotator cuff tears, and glenohumeral arthritis. And so we're going to try to examine some of the pathophysiology behind these specific uh, presentations uh, that we see in rehabilitation, help you get a little better understanding of what might bring somebody to the point where they've got one of these issues and then show up on our doorstep needing some help and some assistance. We're going to look at some of the mechanisms and and also the population health consequences, uh, specifically when we talk about proximal humerus fractures. These are are, are really challenging injuries and happen quite often. And we're going to talk about the the place for rehab specifically with these. Uh, We're going to look at rotator cuff tears. Lots and lots of information out there on these injuries, lots of surgeries that happen, lots of surgeries that don't happen. Uh, So we're going to talk about this really in that narrow window of population of people that have that, which is the, the geriatric population. So we'll kind of focus in more on that rather than maybe some of our younger rotator cuff tear uh, patients. So, And then we're also going to look at glenohumeral arthritis. And again, specifically, we're going to talk about this as we look at the geriatric population. And then uh, finally, to kind of finish off our day today, we're going to talk about some implementation of evidence-based strategies 
to improve the functional use of the shoulder. And specifically, we want people to be able to improve their ability to perform their activities of daily living. And I think that's one of the big things in rehabilitation. A lot of times it's, it's easy to get caught up in, you know, which exercise should we pick and how much weight and how much load and how many reps and how many sets. But really the whole goal is to be able to get people back to doing what they were doing before. And that's really where we want to take our, I think at least as, as healthcare professionals, we would like to take our profession, maybe a little bit of a less of a focus on, it's got to be this many sets or this many reps and a lot more focus on, okay, this individual is now able to do this. So, and I do think one, you really need one to have the other, but the ultimate goal is really to get people back to their ADLs. So uh, again, we'll kind of focus on that and, and, and really kind of bring it all together. And I'm going to hit you with a whole bunch of information in a really, really short period of time. It's an hour of fun. So uh, I really appreciate you spending the time and taking some time out of your day to listen to me. And hopefully you'll get a lot out of this today. So, so, so let's start off. And again, my name's Paul. And uh, just so you get a little background about me, I'm a clinician. I'm just like you. I'm in the clinic every day, working with patients, have been for well over a decade. Uh, I really enjoy orthopedics. It's definitely one of my favorite areas. I also enjoy sports medicine and, and, and enjoy vestibular rehab quite a bit. But really, I think kind of my, my meat and potatoes of of what I do as a rehab professional is is in the orthopedic realm. So I really have found myself, I don't know if you want to call it attracted to shoulders, but I just seem to be comfortable working with shoulders. I think everybody kind of has an area, maybe as you've kind of moved through the rehab uh, uh, years, that, okay, I, I might have a little more skill treating this than that, and this might be a little bit more of a comfort zone for me. I think shoulders are definitely, you know, that area for me because I've seen a lot of them, and I just feel like I, I, I enjoy treating them clinically. So, so to start off, you know, when you look at your geriatric population, shoulder injuries take a really significant toll on their ability to perform functional activities. And I find that quite often when I see these older patients with shoulder issues, it seems like there's kind of a, a, a fairly even split. There's one group of people that's got that traumatic injury, usually that fall onto an outstretched arm, right? So they've caused some type of shoulder injury from that fall, but the uh, seems like a little bit bigger percentage of the population is the chronic long, long-term unmanaged shoulder. And I think one of the things that's different about shoulder uh, pathologies, especially when they're not necessarily traumatic as compared to the lower extremity like knee osteoarthritis or hip osteoarthritis, you don't have the same loading and weight bearing as you do in the lower body going through the upper body. So it seems like, especially with things like osteoarthritis and, and rotator cuff tears, that you might have these things not really having been managed effectively or efficiently, either medically 
or surgically for well before these individuals have ever started with you. So, so it's, like I said, it's been my experience. It's definitely a little different. A lot of times you're going to find in the lower body, knees and hips, that individuals, and I believe it has to do with just the loading that happens in the lower extremity, individuals, when they're prevented from walking, often immediately seek out medical treatment. But a great deal of times I've found that people with shoulder issues kind of just have a tendency to deal with them for a lot longer, uh, which can make it really, really difficult in that management process. So, so, but first, you know, before we get too far into the weeds there, I'm going to, I'm going to reel myself back in because I do that every once in a while. I get off in the weeds. So I'm going to reel myself back in now and let's jump right in and let's start talking about these specific pathologies. We're going to start off and we're going to talk about proximal humerus fractures. Proximal humerus fractures should be fairly obvious on the pathophysiology of these guys, right? Pathophysiology is quite often, it's a fall onto an outstretched arm. Um, I have had more than my fair share of what I call the dog leash injuries, which is where, and it seems to have been a strikingly similar type of population that has this dog leash injury, which is where you have a young I shouldn't say young, excuse me, you have an older, generally smaller, thin-boned female out walking a very large dog or much larger than that person probably has the ability to walk, and the dog runs chasing something, squirrels, other dogs, anything that it feels like it needs to chase, and you get that traction injury that causes the proximal humerus fracture. So that's a much different one than the fall onto an outstretched arm, right? Because that's a compression, but that I've had more than a couple of the dog leash injuries. Again, still a proximal humerus fracture, but much different mechanism of injury. And definitely uh, can present maybe a little bit differently in the rehab process. So, um, so when we look, you know, and we're talking about some of the statistics that, that go along with proximal humerus fractures, following the distal radius and the vertebrae, the proximal humerus is the third most common osteoporotic fracture. So again, you know, like I mentioned there, a lot of times what I've seen with my proximal humerus fractures is they have a tendency to be geriatric, fall onto an outstretched arm or the dog leash injury, and they have a tendency to be thin-boned. And again, when you look at the statistics, that's supported in the statistics, noting that it's the third most common osteoporotic fracture. Um, you know, Proximal humerus fracture management in patients over 65. And this I find to be really, really interesting because you do see this a lot of times in the literature. I think we always think that, you know, by this time, everything's set in stone, everything's easy, and there's all the evidence there. But really, when you look at the literature that's out there, the management of proximal humerus fractures still pretty well debated. But a vast majority of the time, you're going to see these individuals managed non-operatively, right? So, and usually the most frequently non-operatively managed proximal humerus fracture is the minimally displaced fracture, right? So these are the ones that a vast majority of the time we're going to see in rehab. 
They will not necessarily have had an ORIF. They won't have a, had a reverse shoulder. Um, they're going to be maybe in a sling. They may have limited uh, loading. I've seen a couple of different types of slings that, that are used, um, depending on the, the, the physician that treats them. But again, a, a majority of your proximal humerus fractures are going to be recommended to be managed non-operatively. So again, for, for rehab professionals, we should realize this is definitely a group we want to have our skill sets really, really well sharpened because a majority of the time they're going to end up with us. This is not an injury that you can just leave alone. A lot of times what you find is with these individuals, um, you may see them uh, recommended to physical therapy or rehabilitation or occupational therapy very early right? Well before the fracture is healed, because there is uh, definitely, I've, I've gotten some feedback, some fears about frozen shoulders. Um, so definitely these are individuals that we're going to see. And it, again, we really want to have our skill sets wired tight because it's still going to be, I don't want to call it a touchy situation, but you may not see a fully healed fracture coming to you. You may still see them with still that fracture in the healing process, but still being presenting to rehab because they want to prevent the onset of a frozen shoulder. Some of the leading risk factors for having a proximal humerus fracture are bone fragility and uh, people who are at risk of falls. So again, when we look at our geriatric populations, definitely geriatric populations more frequently going to be at risk for falls. Uh, our patients who are of higher medication use or who are on pain medications more likely to fall. So you can see where that, that geriatric population definitely has a much higher risk for this injury. Um, and around 85, I believe it's 85% of these injuries occur in people that are over 50 years old, right? So, and that's me, you know, I'll be honest with you guys. I don't like to think of myself as geriatric, but I'm coming up on it really, really fast. Uh, and it's kind of frightening because now I'm jumping into these new populations that I don't necessarily no, if I, I don't have a choice, but I'm not all that happy about being there. But uh, I digress. Let's move back because I'm kind of spinning out there. So again, like I said, 85% of these injuries occur in people that are over 50 years old. So depending on where you are in the aging cycle, 50 doesn't necessarily feel like geriatric, but it is a percentage of the population that's going to be potentially presenting with this. And when we look at this area for the proximal humerus from an anatomical standpoint, um, it's the second most commonly affected joint in the body by osteonecrosis. And, you know, that is uh, definitely has to do with the potentially fragile uh, vascular uh, feed in into that area. Um, and it's fed by the anterior and posterior humeral circumflex branches of the axillary artery, right? So again, uh, you can have problems in this area uh, due to atherosclerosis. You can have problems in, uh, with circulation into this area due to the nature of the injury itself and the location of the injury. So, but de definitely this is an area that is affected in uh, the second most commonly affected joint in the body by osteonecrosis. 
Um, when we look a little further into the anatomy and the proximal humerus, um, the glenohumeral joint, we should know that's stabilized by uh, multiple structures, both static and dynamic structures. Some of the static structures include the ligaments, uh, the joint capsule, and the labrum, and, and the architecture of the joint itself. The rotator cuff and the deltoid are your primary dynamic stabilizers of the glenohumeral joint. And you know, when we look at the anatomy involved in proximal humerus fractures, we talked a little bit about some of the vascular structures. Of course, the musculature can be affected as well as the ligaments or labrum, uh, but also uh, there can be neural injury that occurs. And, and the, the statistics on this one, about 67% of people with low energy proximal humerus fractures sustain some kind of uh, a neural injury. Most commonly, injured nerves in this specific pathology include the axillary artery, or excuse me, axillary nerve, uh, suprascapular nerve, radial, musculocutaneous, median, and ulnar nerves, and that's in the descending order. So your most frequent is going to be the axillary followed by suprascapular, then radial, musculocutaneous, median, and then ulnar nerves. So again, you know, when we look at the proximal humerus fracture, there's definitely some specific things I think it's very helpful to know from a statistical standpoint who we're most likely to see, the ages affected, again, 50 and up, a uh, pretty big percentage of the population, your people that are most at risk, people who are potential for falling, and with uh, thin bone frames or thin bone structures. Let's move on a little bit to talk about more about rotator cuff tears or the rotary cup as it's so nicely called by a patient I had just this evening. So the rotary cup, I'm still trying to figure out where they get that from. But uh, again, I'm digressing. So let's move into talking about it. Um, and I think probably many of us have heard these statistics about rotator cuff tears, but I always like going over them because it, 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 I'm actually fascinated by it. Um, you know, rotator cuff tears have been found to be present in over 50% of individuals that are over 60 years of age. The size of the rotator cuff tear, because I, I think this is the thing that at least patients really want to emphasize this. It hurts a lot, so it must be a really huge tear. Well, the literature shows us the size of the tear, and specifically when we look at rotator cuffs, has not been found to correlate to pain levels. So patients can be in a lot of pain. It doesn't necessarily always correlate to the level of soft tissue damage, right? I've had patients with full thickness rotator cuff tears, and I'm sure you all have too, little to no pain at all. So it's important for us to recognize that just because a patient has a lot of pain, it's not going to necessarily correlate to severity of injury. Sometimes it does. It's important not to overlook it, but try not to let it bias your opinion and perspective as you're going through. Um, large rotator cuff tears, and one of the things that happens with uh, rotator cuff tears, especially degenerative rotator cuff tears, is what they note, especially when you look at it on imaging, um, a rotator cuff starts to get fatty infiltrate in the muscle, and, and I've always heard of this. Uh, you know, you can think of a really well-marbled steak as an example of fatty infiltrate in a muscle. So when fat starts to infiltrate in a muscle, it loses its ability to generate force as well as its contractile capacity. And when we look at our older patients who have a lot of 
fatty infiltration into these larger rotator cuff tears into the leftover segments, um, that's going to have a tendency for those tears to retract further. And although a large rotator cuff tear may not necessarily always cause large amounts of pain, a large rotator cuff tear does increase the difficulty to repair that structure. So that may be a reason that a, a, a rotator cuff repair surgery is not opted for if the rotator cuff tear is too large. There are definitely some factors that increase the likelihood of having a rotator cuff tear. Uh, the primary one is age, right? The older you get, the more likely you are to have some type of a rotator cuff tear. Also higher body mass index involvement of the dominant shoulder. So if you're right-handed, your right shoulder is more likely to have a rotator cuff tear. Uh, and these are independent factors that are associated with increased likelihood of rotator cuff tears. But again, ultimately the biggest thing that's the, the primary association to rotator cuff pathology is age. So just another gift of getting older is that you're more likely to jump into that group of people that have some type of rotator cuff pathology. Um, and again, you know, we've kind of talked about it a little bit about rotator cuff tear size and, and pain levels. But one of the really, I think, and again, it's fascinating to me because I always want to think that if something's torn, it's going to hurt. And, but there's a well-recognized feature specifically of rotator cuff tears that they are often asymptomatic. But a tear progression in asymptomatic people is also known to have a consequence, right? So if somebody has a rotator cuff tear, but they don't realize it's there, there's gonna be a degenerative process that continues on, especially as this stays unmanaged. So your degenerative tear commonly begins at the junction of the posterior supraspinatus and the anterior edge of the infraspinatus. And so that's your primary location that you're gonna see these most frequently happen. You get fatty degeneration around this tear site and that causes the tear size to increase. Once it gets past a threshold size of tear, you're going to start to get what, what's known as proximal humerus migration, right? And proximal humerus migration, if you just kind of think about how the humeral head sits in the glenoid fossa, and I, I always like the golf ball and the tee comparison, how the humeral head sits in the glenoid fossa, and it's stabilized by the rotator cuff musculature in that space. But if you lose the integrity of one or multiple of those rotator cuff muscles, that golf ball starts to travel upwards because it doesn't have anything stabilizing it in the tee. And as that humeral head begins to migrate, you start getting greater and greater levels of compression underneath of it. And then you start to get what's known as rotator cuff arthropathy, which is arthritic degeneration at that joint, which can then further increase pain, inflammation in the area, start to get reductions in range of motion, uh, crepitus, and now you start to get into that cascade that becomes a real problem. So again, 
even though a tear may or may not be symptomatic, if it's asymptomatic, that can create its own problems in the long term because then it becomes an unmanaged injury and that unmanaged injury can cascade and cause much bigger problems later on. When we look at the mainstay treatment for partial thickness rotator cuff tears, and, and again, this is based on uh, you know, really good quality systematic reviews, but the primary treatment for partial thickness rotator cuff tears is rehab, right? And when we look at the full thickness rotator cuff tears, again, rehabilitation should be your first line defense based on the literature that's out there with a progression to a surgery in the event that rehabilitation is unable to restore the ability to function in ADLs and satisfactory quality of life. So, you know, again, and just like proximal humerus fractures, when we look at rotator cuffs, we should realize how important it is that rehab is involved and the literature is, that's out there shows it. It should be well investigated throughout the entire management process that can rehabilitation and rehab work positively affect this individual's outcome without surgery. Um, and so, and I've seen all sorts of different stuff on how people refer to it when somebody doesn't have an improvement in quality of life to a satisfactory level with rehab. Some people will call it failed rehab. I'm not a really big fan of that. I just like to think that it didn't do what the individual wanted it to do. But usually the trial period, especially in your full thickness rotator cuff tear, about three months. So a 12-week trial of rehabilitation before a surgical decision is a good period of time to assess the effectiveness of rehabilitation prior to making that decision for surgery. Uh, so there are a few other things where sometimes it may be better to move towards a surgery. Um, your acute traumatic tears a lot of times are going to have more likely a, a, a surgical management in the earlier phases. And a lot of times that's going to be your individual that slips and falls, like slip and fall on the ice, lands on the elbow, uh, fall onto an outstretched hand, uh, sports-related injury, motor vehicle accident. These may have earlier surgical interventions. Uh, patients of younger ages. So younger age patients may opt to go to surgery earlier. Um, if the patient has intractable pain, so they've investigated different pain management strategies and it is not improving, that's an indication for surgery. Um, good quality muscle is also a really, really key component of an indication for surgery. If they do not have good quality muscle, and good quality tissue to work with, it's gonna be very, very difficult for them to have a good outcome. And you know, this, this is the part of things really challenging for the surgeon, because although we would like to think that an MRI is gonna show us all the information we need to know on tissue quality, many times the only way to really know how good the quality of the tissue is is once they get in there. So 
and again, don't. It's important for me not to understate how challenging of a job it is for surgeons to be able to go through and make that right decision. But definitely, as rehab professionals, we want to know where our space is, and and our space is extremely important in managing a rotator cuff tears, uh, both conservative and and then post surgery. So. Finally, let's talk a little bit more about glenohumeral osteoarthritis because it's definitely an area that I think is going to be a good piece to talk to and bring everything together from the first part of the course. So let's talk a little bit more now about glenohumeral osteoarthritis. Definitely something that you know, we should all be pretty familiar with osteoarthritis. It is something that affects a vast majority of individuals. It's characterized by a progressive loss of the cartilage, the articular cartilage that covers the bone. You get a new bone formation, right, which is these osteophytes, and uh, you get inflammation of the synovial tissue that surrounds that joint. And one of the hallmarks that goes along with osteoarthritis is progressive muscle strength loss. So also what you're going to see, especially in the shoulder glenohumeral joint that's been affected by osteoarthritis, you're usually going to see a lot of atrophy compared to the contralateral side of the deltoid muscles, uh, the scapular musculature the whole shoulder complex itself compared to the contralateral side side should demonstrate some pretty noticeable and visible uh, muscle atrophy compared to that contralateral side. Um, osteoarthritis, you know, the, the gold standard for diagnosing osteoarthritis is just a plain film radiograph. So, and that gives a, a really nice picture of joint space. Uh, can also potentially show some cartilage damage. Uh, and so it definitely is a very inexpensive way and a quick way to start helping you in that diagnostic process. So if you're in a state where rehabilitation professionals can order plain film imaging, it's definitely something that you want to have an awareness of, of how valuable it can be to help get a diagnosis for glenohumeral osteoarthritis. So, and when we look at imaging, although our patients will have us believe that if you have a picture of it, you're going to know exactly what's going on, as we know, it's not always that case. So, you know, when we look at the, the evidence on imaging, as far as it relates to glenohumeral osteoarthritis, uh, severity of radiographic changes of the arthritic shoulder do not, do not, correlate to complaints about joint pain. So you can have patients with really, really, really horrific looking shoulders on a plain film image, but they may not complain too much about pain. What is interesting though, is that based on the literature that is out there, the severity of those radiographic changes in the arthritic shoulder joint do correlate to the level of functional impairment of that involved shoulder. So the worse it is on a plain film image, generally the worse uh, function that shoulder has. So the worse that that person is at performing their ADLs with that side. So definitely that the, that imaging does have a lot of value for us in the diagnostic process, uh, but also in kind of giving us a thought process on potential 
for recovery, potential for rehabilitations to optimize long-term outcomes. So um, it is a valuable piece of data to have in, the, the, in that whole management process. The other thing that I've been seeing a lot of, and I don't know if it has to do with uh, the area of the country, or uh, you know what's popular I, I think it's just generally uh, um, you're seeing it in more and more places but it's the discussion about stem cells uh, prp and their use in managing osteoarthritis and uh, you know right now as far as literature goes there is no literature out there that really demonstrates the effectiveness of PRP stem cells, or these are all kind of collectively known as orthobiologics. So there's no really good high quality studies out there that demonstrate that these orthobiologics are gonna have a really high level of efficacy and, and positive effect in managing patients who have that. Uh, glenohumeral osteoarthritis. So it is something I do get a lot of questions about. Um, you know, there's many points in time where patients do want to and do have the available resources to spend for it. And, you know, that's what I'll tell them, that the, the research isn't out there to support it. However, I do understand you're wanting to investigate all potential treatments before opting for a surgical intervention. But there just isn't the literature out there. So, so yeah, when we look at uh, glenohumeral osteoarthritis, there's some some very interesting stuff. Like I said, as far as radiographic image, uh, radiographic uh, images of the shoulder, it does correlate. The more damage on radiograph, the lower level of function the individual has, uh, and you know some of the things that do show correlations besides the level of severity of radiographic image and function of the shoulder is also uh, uh, patients who have diabetes, right? Uh, with glenohumeral osteoarthritis have a tendency to have higher pain scores than patients who have glenohumeral osteoarthritis who do not have diabetes. So again, you know, there's some interesting correlations when we look at this specific population uh, out there in the literature. There is value in those radiographic images. They do help us maybe potentially understand top-end limits for individuals, uh, and but maybe somewhat confusing when we look at pain levels because sometimes people with really, really bad images don't necessarily have really, really bad pain. So... So yeah, so that's a, a little overview on uh, uh, proximal humerus fractures, glenohumeral osteoarthritis, and rotator cuff tears. So now let's kind of move into really what is probably much more interesting for everybody and is really, you know, kind of what we are all in, in the business that we're in of rehabilitation. So so when we look at rehabilitation, it's really important. And again, especially when we look at the shoulder, we want to consider how important it is to understand numbers that are necessary for functional activities of daily living, right? Ranges of motion. Also, it's important to recognize loading forces that may occur during day-to-day -day activities. So, and these will help us to better delineate when people are able to reach milestones, we can use these as objective measures, 
Uh, so it really gives us a good information to help us in both objectively quantifying the effectiveness of our treatments as well as goal setting. So, so when we look at tasks of daily living and we look at ranges of motion that are, are required, a couple of nice pieces of research, I'll include these in, in uh, our little uh, PowerPoint presentation for you. You can look at these afterwards, but to successfully complete all tasks of daily living, a person requires approximately 120 degrees of forward elevation of the shoulder, 45 degrees of extension, 130 degrees of abduction, 115 degrees of cross-body adduction, and 60 degrees of external rotation along with 100 degrees of internal rotation. So although that's seems like really high numbers compared to the overall range that's available at the shoulder, it still leaves us with quite a bit of wiggle room. So, so when we look at our activities of daily living, these numbers can be really, really helpful for us. Again, for goal setting, also to see where somebody's starting at versus where we would like to get them to. When we start looking at loading forces, and again, specifically when we look at the glenohumeral joint, I think this is a really important piece of information to know and to understand because it can help us as we're prescribing our different interventions um, to know how much loads are actually happening and then also how much loading tolerance somebody needs to be able to perform these activities. And again, earlier I said, I think a lot of times the shoulder joint has a tendency to get kind of pushed back because we're not using it in the same way that we use the hip and the knee. And that may cause us to think, well, of course, there's probably not as much contact forces at the shoulder joint as at the hip or the knee. But, you know, there was, a, again, another nice piece of research that I'll, I'll make sure is included in, in any follow-up information that we have from this podcast. But um, when we look at different glenohumeral contact forces and we look at kind of basic functional types of activities. Really nice piece of research went through and took a look at this. And uh, I'm going to pull this one up really, really quick so I can make sure that I get the, the uh, authors right. Give me one second there. Yeah, and this study is a study out of uh, clinical biomechanics and from 2018, so not too bad, right? Pretty close, and it's called Analysis of Shoulder Compressive and Shear Forces During Functional Activities of Daily Life. So they did a really, really nice job about examining a lot of these different types of activities. So what they found, when they looked specifically at glenohumeral contact forces, um, so, and they did this by body weight percentages, which I thought was great. And so they took a, a 10 kilogram suitcase, lifting it laterally, and they found that that creates about 240% of body weight forces up on the glenohumeral joint, right? So that's a lot of load, right? For a 10 kilogram uh, suitcase moved laterally, 10 kilograms, about 20 pounds. So, you know, that's not that heavy of an object, really in the big picture, especially if you're somebody that travels or somebody that's carrying groceries in from the house, right? So uh, a 240% of body weight contact force has created the glenohumeral joint with that load. 100%, 180% of body weight uh, are 
contact forces are created at the glenohumeral joint by lifting a five kilogram box ventrally, 170% of body weight on average for walking with a cane. So, which I thought was just fascinating, right? Because uh, we don't, we try to get our patients to use a cane to help offload the contralateral lower extremity, but a lot of times we may forget how much load it's creating on that contralateral shoulder joint. And if you have somebody that's got an arthritic shoulder joint, it would make sense that this really lights them up if they're using a cane on that side. So, um, glenohumeral contact forces for hammering a nail, 70% of body weight. So uh, our individuals who are still active and doing things, absolutely, this may be a task that they've tried to do. Uh, for hair combing, right? 65% of body weight, glenohumeral contact forces with combing your hair. And steering a car, 40% uh, body weight in glenohumeral contact forces. So really, you know, when we look at this and it, 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 it just, I think it's very easy to underestimate how much load that joint has to tolerate. And, and, you know, one final piece of, that they did find in there, they found body weight uh, uh, contact forces at the glenohumeral joint ranging from 23% to up to 75% of body weight uh, in activities that included feeding, personal hygiene, and lifting everyday objects. So really, again, the whole point of knowing numbers like that isn't necessarily to pull that information off the top of your head and give it to a patient. It's more for the clinician to understand, I really am creating a lot of loading forces for this individual when they go home and do these day-to-day -day activities, which could explain why they come back in so lit up. And I also need to help them build up the tolerance to be able to handle those types of loading forces with my rehab interventions, which is where I find that it can be just as harmful to underdose strengthening exercise as it can be to overshoot. In fact, for me as a clinician, I'm more concerned about underdosing people because there is such a high level of need for loading tolerance with these day-to-day -day activities. So yeah, I, I think when we look at those types of literature and that type of information, it becomes really, really helpful for us to understand where that literature can be applied for us as a clinician. And then what does it mean in the big picture for our, our, our interventions and the importance of our rehab interventions in helping that patient return to function. Okay, so looking into some of these specific pathologies, when we look at proximal humerus fractures, we talked about uh, the importance of rehabilitation and how a majority of individuals who have a proximal humerus fracture are going to do rehab as their primary management strategy, right? Not surgery, but they're gonna do rehab. So what's been found in literature and what's recommended is that starting rehab interventions early and having a shorter immobilization period is more effective than starting exercise after a longer immobilization period, right? It's been found that people who start rehab earlier have decreased impairments compared to those who start later. So again, for us, this is, I think, where it really takes a good clinical skill set 
to manage individuals who are coming to us because they may still have several different things that are affecting them. Pain, uh, fear avoidance, kinesiophobia, especially when it's that early. Um, they don't necessarily have complete fracture healing. So we have to be really careful and cautious with our selection of interventions. Uh, things that I like to do, obviously manual therapy can be very important in those early, early phases. Uh, gentle soft tissue work, as well as passive range of motion at the elbow, wrist, shoulder, Working on uh, the scapular musculature can be really, really valuable. It can be difficult to get patients into the positions that they need to get into to do some of our traditional exercises. I know I've had a lot of problems where patients can't necessarily lay in prone. So you may have to do a lot of uh, manual work with scapular retraction. You can have them doing that in sitting, uh, having them hold their elbow with the contralateral side, and then you give manual pressure as they do scapular retraction. Uh, so that's an option, especially if they're not necessarily comfortable going into sideline or prone to do uh, scapular retractions. Lots and lots of grip strengthening. So lots of grip putty, very effective way to start working on rotator cuff muscles, uh, shoulder elevation, so upper traps, fantastic to work with. A lot of contralateral strengthening, right? So strengthening on the side that's opposite of the side that was injured. Uh, shoulder work, fantastic. Uh, deep neck flexors, very, very good. Uh, shoulder and upper thoracic mobility, or I should say upper thoracic mobility with uh, uh, some gentle trunk extensions. So again, the idea is with that proximal humerus fracture, one, you're trying to reduce range of motion and functional loss. You're trying to reduce the amount of muscle atrophy that's going to happen. Um, I, generally, I wouldn't even consider starting gentle isometrics until you've got full clearance from the physician to start isometrics at the shoulder complex especially because that's going to be a glenohumeral focused uh, intervention that's going to create load through that fracture. So, But again, your scapular retractions and elevation, those are going to be within your ranges. Uh, elbow flexion and extension can be used. Um, gentle resistance based on the individual and how they're presenting. They may just have to start with gravity, though, as the primary type of resistance. Gradually, as they get better and further and deeper into the healing process, you can begin to work into active assisted ranges of motion with our maybe our more traditional pulleys. Um, if you do have the ability to access aquatic therapy, aquatic therapy can be a really nice way to begin getting some gentle motion through the shoulder in a, you know, a, a little safer environment for many people. They may feel more comfortable. So aquatic therapy can be a nice way to begin introducing gentle loads and gentle ranges of motion. So those are fantastic ways to start introducing that. When we start looking at rotator cuff tears, again, you know, when we look at rotator cuff tears, one of the things that's going to be really a hallmark with these is pain. So, and we did talk about earlier how tear size doesn't necessarily always correlate to pain levels. So this is an important piece of the puzzle for us as clinicians to realize and to recognize that pain control is going to be a really, really important component for us to be able to 
implement our treatment strategies with these individuals successfully. So, you know, many times if patients are coming in and they're in that much pain that you can't do manual therapy, collaboration with the referring practitioner can be really helpful. Um, this is where, and again, there's a lot of discussion on this at this point because what you do see a big movement away from is the use of corticosteroids. But in these cases, a lot of times corticosteroid injection can be a first-line treatment and an effective way to manage pain. The idea is, is, is the risk-reward worth it? I don't know that there's as much information and research does not necessarily show as good of short-term outcomes in pain management with the use of PRPs or orthobiologics compared to corticosteroids. So, you know, that pain control in that early phase, really, really important. That allows us to begin implementing our treatment strategies. I have found a lot of times with my patients with rotator cuff tears, a lot more difficult to do passive ranges. There's a lot of tendency towards muscle guarding. So many times with my rotator cuff patients, I will focus primarily on active assisted range of motion first. I want to give them more control about the range of motion and the mobility. I would like to give them you know, some autonomy. I want to give them numbers to shoot for though, right? So I'll measure maybe when, if they're doing a pulleys, I'll measure what their maximum range of motion is. And then I'll come back when they're not really ready and I'll measure again and see, are they getting any further? So I want to give them the goal to get a little bit more, but many times with these patients, I have a tendency to move away from the passive ranges of motion just because I found a lot of times that that muscle guarding and that, that kinesiophobia really limits the effectiveness of that, that manual passive range of motion. So again, my tendency a lot more often to go into that, uh, that active assisted range of motion as my first line treatment with rotator cuff tears, especially after pain has been well managed. Once that pain gets well managed, it makes it a lot easier for the patient to undertake that, 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 that range of motion work. When we look at glenohumeral osteoarthritis, uh, one of the things that I've noticed is that you know, there's quite a bit of difference in, in either being able to use open chain or closed chain interventions with these individuals. I find a lot of times that with my glenohumeral osteoarthritis, the open chain interventions are, are quite difficult for them. They create a lot of shear forces at the glenohumeral joint. Uh, you have a tendency to get a really a lot of crepitus. Uh, so a, a lot of times I'll try some, you know, active assisted range of motion, but in closed chain. So I'll have them doing a, 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 either a table slide or using a Swiss ball and rolling out into flexion on a Swiss ball. Um, so that's a way to go closed chain versus the open chain. Like a, you might try on a, a set of pulleys or uh, with a, a cane, uh, active assisted range of motion in the flexion. So using open versus closed chain in both active assisted range of motion as well as into your exercise selection can be a really, really effective way to see 
uh, uh, changes, but then also to improve patient autonomy because I'll tell somebody, hey, listen, this Swiss ball or this table slide is the exact same thing as using the cane and coming up overhead. Which one's more comfortable for you? Which one can you tolerate better? Which one you get better range of motion with? So it gives us a lot of different tools to attack that same problem of range motion because we want to see how much range can we establish how much can that individual get and then can we develop strength in that range with my patients that have and this is something that i have seen also concomitant rotator cuff tears with glenohumeral osteoarthritis a lot of times you're going to see a maximum threshold that they can tolerate they are not necessarily going to be able to build up that strength level to the same amount it's not going to have the same response as you might see to a typical resistance training program you may see that once they start reaching a threshold of where they get fatigued that has a tendency to send their pain levels up so with these individuals i've found myself a lot of times not necessarily trying to push at the same levels of progression for strength but i may try to push more for progression of strength endurance right so because they just don't necessarily have that same loading tolerance there's also a lot of times where they see the weight and they see that it's heavier and they get apprehensive and they may talk themselves out of it right so as seeing okay can we try this many today can we try this many today rather than always pushing the weight up i find that's a, sometimes a nice way to move around some of the kinesiophobia that i encounter with individuals when they've got these types of pathologies so looking at you know how much strength that's required for these day-to-day -day activities and these functional activities We've got the, you know, your basic selection of exercises that are kind of, I'd say, in everybody's handbook, your sideline external rotations, your uh, therabands where you're doing external internal rotation, all of these different functional activities or all of these different exercise activities are really, really great. They can potentially build up strength. They can potentially be a tools to help manage pain but we want to see do they improve function so that's for us as clinicians where we really want to make sure that we're integrating those functional activities if the problem is walking with a cane and they have pain with walking with a cane can we build up intolerance and endurance for that can we try to make some modifications to it maybe ergonomic modifications can we start building up strength of the tricep and the forearm flexors and the wrist extensors to help potentially offload some of the shoulder joint um, so again looking down into the rest of the arm beyond just the shoulder joint upper trapezius work it's probably one of my favorite favorite areas and i i'm always amazed that I think it's the only muscle group that I've ever seen in rehabilitation where I've heard rehabilitation professionals say, oh, you don't need to strengthen it all. It's fine. In fact, it's too tight. It's the only muscle that I've ever heard people say that gravity is enough to keep it strong and that gravity makes it too strong and too tight. Mm -mm. 
upper trapezius strengthening is extremely important for shoulder health and for shoulder strength and to stabilize the scapula and to attenuate force loading, right? It forms a force couple with the serratus. So if you ignore it, you create more potential for further scapular dyskinesia than you're probably already going to have with patients who have these types of long-term shoulder pathologies. So don't ignore the rest of the shoulder complex. Don't ignore it for just trying to do shoulder external rotation, shoulder internal rotations. Get into these other muscle groups, lats, upper traps, serratus, triceps, biceps, and wrist extensors and flexors to help try to reduce the loading forces at the shoulder complex. And, and finally, to, you know, to really bring it all together and think of set it more than once or twice, but by all means, you really, 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 really need to incorporate the functional activities into your rehabilitation in order to assess, is this person functioning at a level that they're able to tolerate and that they want to be at? Or can I improve their ability to do that through further loading here? So... So I think we've come to the end of our day today. And like I said, there's just, I know it's a lot of information and I, I really, really hope that everybody was able to, to take something away from this because a lot of stuff coming at you. And it's a lot of fun for me to be able to go through and, and bring all this information together. And I hope that you had a really good time listening to it and I hope you're able to take some of this information into the clinic with you on the next day that you're in there and put it into practice. So thanks to everyone and have a great afternoon or evening or morning wherever you are at. Thank you for listening to the PT and OT Connection Podcast by Summit Professional Education. To view accreditation information for your state and profession and access completion requirements to receive a certificate for completing this course, please visit summit-education.com or click the link in the course description in your podcast platform.